Okay, uh, everyone, welcome back to our, our second lecture today as part of our Psychology and Nature Conference. I'm joined here by Professor Jeffrey Beatty, who's going to give a talk on the psychology of climate change. So, Professor Beatty is an internationally acclaimed psychologist, author, and broadcaster. He's Professor of Psychology at Age Hill University, a Master Supervisor on the Sustainability Leadership Program at the University of Cambridge, and a visiting professor at the University of California. He was awarded the Spearman Medal by the British Psychological Society for published psychological research for outstanding merit and the internationally acclaimed Mouton d'Or for his work in semiotics. He is both a chartered psychologist and a chartered scientist. He is a fellow of the British Psychological Society, a fellow of the Royal Society of Medicine, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and an ex-president of the psychology section of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. You can learn more about Professor Biddy's work at www.jeffbiddy.com. So, Professor Biddy, whenever you're ready, um, let's just get started. I'm really looking forward to this. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you all for coming. It's weird not being able to see you. Um, and I've never given a lecture like this before, so we'll have to see how it goes. Um, I'm looking forward to your interaction. I gather you're going to be asking a lot of uh, questions and making a lot of comments. And uh, towards the end, I may even invite you to take part in some of the research. If you find the research that we do interesting, I'd love you to, 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 to take part. So I'm going to treat you like all university students here, you know, contributing to the, to the body of knowledge. Okay, so Niall asked me to talk about the psychology of climate change. We had a, a chat a, a week or so ago, and he asked me why I, I, I do work in this area. Uh, the answer is very simple. There's nothing more important. Um, and I think psychology is the key, really. Uh, I've worked with a lot of people from other disciplines, anthropologists, ec economists, sociologists, and so on. And I just think psychology is at the center of all this because it's kind of people and their values and their attitudes and their behavior, which is critical to doing something about it all. And I'll show how it connects to, to some other areas as well. Okay, right. So, oops, let's start. Okay, so psychology of climate change, what is, what is the issue? Well, we all know that we need a green revolution. Um, and of course, with COVID, we've seen that you know, revolutions are possible. I mean, it's been a, hopefully a, a, a fixed term revolution, but you know, enormous change was necessary. And the problem is with climate change, we need something uh, pretty, pretty similar, really. Uh, and the Green Revolution has to be at all levels, you know, a change in political focus, a change in infrastructure, and critically, a change in people's behavior, choices, and priorities. I think behavior, choices, and priorities are the absolute key. And the point about that is that we need this to happen at all sorts of levels, at the levels of uh, countries, the national level, at the levels of uh, cities and towns, communities, groups families and individuals and th because of all of the levels we need this incredible revolution i would say that psychology is absolutely kind of key to what we need to do okay so say something about climate change first of all well the scientific evidence is overwhelming uh, i always say there's a remarkable scientific consensus on climate change because the whole point about um, science and psychology is scientists argue about everything and psychologists argue about everything 
but when it comes to climate change, there's uh, an incredible degree of consensus uh, about what's happening. Uh, and of course, the, the, the scientific consensus and, and research is reviewed by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change periodically every few years. So we kind of know what the uh, current scientific position is. And climate change, of course, threatens the basic elements of life for people around the globe. Obviously doing something a bit. Oh, here. Okay. So now the big question is, we know about the uh, scientific consensus. We know what the science is telling us. We know how important it's going to be. And yet there just seems to be this kind of gap between what we know and people's concern. Now, over the last year and a half or so, obviously, there's been Extinction Rebellion. So we can talk about that towards the end. The, the last book, I, I've done two books on climate change. The last one was published in 2019. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in thinking about all the stuff that led up to that book. And then we'll talk about public campaigns on top of that. Because um, I've recently commented on the BLM Black Lives Matter campaign as well, but I still think it it doesn't necessarily touch the kind of core issues. So I'll explain what I mean kind of, kind of later on in that. So why hasn't the message about climate change got through? Well, I think there's a number of levels we have to think about this whole issue. I think there's a level of understanding first of all. And I think the problem when it comes to climate change is there are lots of misunderstandings about even what we're talking about. So that's one thing I want to reflect on. I think the second thing is about people's beliefs generally and how they connect to attitudes to climate change. I think there's a really big issue there. I think the third issue is this notion of personal vulnerability. And I really mean personal vulnerability, i.e. will it affect you and your life rather than some lives sometime in the future, which is quite different. So I want to kind of reflect on that. And the fourth issue is, I think, about issues of personal responsibility, because, again, when it comes to climate change, there is a terrible temptation to kind of leave it to others, you know, other countries, other people, other, or, or possibly other people in the future. And I also think, by the way, that a lot of climate change campaigns haven't helped with that. They've actually done a lot to kind of reinforce those, those beliefs. And then perhaps uh, uh, most importantly of all, I want to talk about behavior and action, because in the end, it's not what we think that's important. It's really, uh, uh, it's really, um, <laughs> just reading the comments coming up, someone says, get your glasses fitted properly, so I'll try and adjust them on my head. Uh, it's really what people do in the end that's, uh, that, that's really critical, of course, when it comes to uh, climate change. Okay, now, of course, uh, Greta has got everyone talking about uh, the climate change issues and uh, uh, game changer of the year. So suddenly it's, it's very much in the public discourse. But what I'm going to argue is that in terms of the psychology behind it, there's just so much more that haven't really been addressed yet. And I want to bring up some really uh, important issues, I think, about about the role of, of, of different levels of processing about climate change, including some uh, aspects of processes that we may not normally be consciously aware of. And I want to talk about the implications of that uh, for what we do. Now, first of all, in terms of understanding, I think there's an enormous uh, number of misunderstandings about climate change, a great deal of confusion. Uh, one of the, the, the most basic aspects of confusion 
which shows itself in different ways is the confusion between weather and climate and the tendency to use examples of weather as evidence against climate change. Now, you can either look at this in the, in, in the, in the most basic way or, or more complex and interesting ways, but I think there, there is a real issue there. Now, the story I like to tell is I was on a, on a bus in Sheffield in December 2017, and I had a notebook on my knee uh, with two words yeah, on the page which said climate change exclamation mark. I was trying to think about something. I was riding on a bus. And of course, when you ride on a bus, maybe it's just me, but I always hate people sitting beside me and some guy sat beside me and that was okay. And then he started glancing at the notebook and saw climate change. And he said, well, that's rubbish for a start, isn't it? Now, I don't know about you, but I hate people sparking up conversations on buses. I didn't know what to say. The bus was quite, quite busy, of course, which is why I sat beside me. Um, so I kind of tried to not communicate too much. And he then started pointing outside. There was a very, very slight dusting of snow on the street. And he said, well, that just proves it's bloody rubbish, isn't it? Uh, I was getting slightly embarrassed. And he was kind of looking around the bus to draw attention to this person. He was kind of had a little slogan on his notebook. And clearly there was evidence to the contrary outside. There was snow on the ground. And I thought, oh, no. And it's like, you know, he was trying to get me to agree with him that there was no such thing as climate change because there was a tiny bit of snow. So that's one example of the slight confusion between weather and climate. Uh, a famous climate change denier, of course, is Donald Trump. Um, and every time there's a, a little bit of it, uh, on seasonal weather in Florida, he says, you know, this is really it just proves that it's fake news. Of course, there's no such a thing. Uh, this is a tweet from, again, when I was thinking first thinking about that last book, December 2017. It could be the coldest New Year's Eve on record. Perhaps we could use a bit of that good old global warming. So some people, whenever they see the weather slightly changing, they think, well, they're kind of reassured a little bit about uh, global warming generally. And if you ask people to do kind of kind of mathematical predictions of how the temperature is going to change and you ask them on a, on a cold day or a, or a warm day, it seems their whole kind of model of the future seems to change depending upon the weather outside. Now, there's a, there's a nice piece in the New York Times a few years ago saying that the difference is quite simple. Uh, think of weather as the money you've got in your pocket and, and uh, climate as your net worth. So if you're a billionaire like Trump, and you've forgotten your, your wallet for the day. That doesn't make you a poor person. It just means you've forgotten your wallet. So the weather's what you've got in your pocket. Climate's your net worth. Um, there's no real connection between the two. And yet it seems that every time the weather changes slightly, people's whole views about climate change seem to either change in, in trivial ways and confrontational ways on the bus, but they also change in... In, in more profound ways, you think, well, you, you're kind of you're less concerned, you're you're less worried because the weather's changed. Okay, so that's understanding first of all. Now, the second thing is is, is about belief, and, and and belief is is is, is interesting um, because there's been a lot of uh, surveys done on people's belief in in global warming, and of course, what's interesting is not just the number of people who think that it's occurring, but how that changes depending upon certain circumstances. So I was thinking it might, might, might be the time for the first poll, really, and, and maybe I could just ask you all to, to answer the first question. So perhaps now could, could, well, I haven't done this before, so let's see how it works. Let's post the first poll, really, just to see the audience's belief about, about climate change. So 
Okay, so if you, if you do that, maybe I just keep talking. Maybe that's how it works. So uh, one survey not so long ago suggested that in the US, only 52% believe that global warming was happening. And of course, that figure does fluctuate with economic conditions and other factors. It depends upon the, how the economy is doing. And of those 52%, half thought that global warming, if it does exist, was attributable to the natural causes. In other words, it, there's a lot of people who don't seem to believe that it's kind of connected to human activities, you know, human use of energy, use of land, population changes, all of those kind of things, that it's somehow a natural occurrence, really not connected to uh, these things that human beings are connected to. Now, a really interesting question is what differentiates believers and non-believers? And there's a couple of kind of important things here, I think. I think the first is is faith in an understanding of science. Now, this whole business of, you know, do you believe what the scientists say and do you understand how they reason and how they come to the conclusions and how they summarize their positions? Because for those of you who have read IPCC reports, you know, the, the, you know, the, the international body which you know, reviews and summarizes the science, they use words like extremely likely, you know, uh, and extremely likely is a scientific term, of course, meaning a 95% chance of occurring. All science, of course, is probabilistic. As, as Benjamin Franklin famously said, I think there's only two things certain in life, which is death and taxes. Everything else is just a, a probability. Um, and uh, the problem with science is it uses this term highly likely. In other words, it's not certain. It's just highly likely. You know, we do research and then we, 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 we summarize the results in probabilistic terms. So I think there's kind of faith in science, but there's also the issue about how we understand terms like that, you know, which is, you know, are, are they not certain because they're just saying extremely likely. So that's one issue I think that differentiates believers and non-believers. But also I think there's other issues to do with the political and ideological position. In 2013, only 50% of Republicans, but 88% of Democrats in the US believed uh, in climate change. And those statistics are interesting because before the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, which was the first kind of international agreement about the implications of climate change for certain industries, those percentages were much closer and the divergence only occurred after Kyoto. Now, what happened after Kyoto, of course, was that suddenly there was a huge number of articles, books, pamphlets, publications, arguing against climate change. And a lot of those, of course, are connected to certain kinds of industries. Um, and the idea was to create a, quote, a scientific debate about the nature of climate change, i.e. whether it is happening or not, uh, whether there are really two positions. Uh, and to me, this is one of the really interesting issues. And I, I will later on be talking about how this also happened with the smoking industry uh, when the scientific evidence emerged about the relationship between uh, smoking and cancer. But suddenly there was a huge amount put into generating debate. And that debate involved a lot of very famous psychologists who, who um, were rewarded for talking about some issues that, that might not have been controlled. And it looks like after Kyoto, something similar happened. I mean, it, it happened, I think, I think the smoking debate started in 1953. So this was this was 40-odd years later that suddenly the, the great debate set up. And, of course, 
for a long while, all news programs had to have, quote, say, balanced position. You know, the scientists on the one hand and the, the people, the non-believers on the other, arguing against this. We can, we can talk about that, but, but there is a real issue there about, about people's um, uh, understanding and, and belief about science. And I think there are other variables as well, like, of course, education, age, social class, media consumption, lots of other things differentiates believers and non-believers. But I suppose my take on this, and, and I kind of pushed this as being a, a slightly different position, was I was also interested in what you might call kind of individual differences between people in terms of how they processed and responded to and understood the messages, because I think there's something at, a, at an individual level which also is kind of kind of critical uh, at, at this level, um, and that took me down a line of research which, which started exploring what those individual uh, differences might be. So I'll, I'll, I'll explain that that research coming up. Now the third kind of uh, big issue about this, and this kind of connects to what I've just said about individual differences, really is um, what you might call our sense of personal vulnerability. Now, to me, personal vulnerability is, is something which is a really interesting aspect of everyday psychology. Um, there's something extraordinary about human beings most of the time, which is we are very optimistic. Uh, some of us, of course, are more optimistic than others. Uh, and it looks like Optimism is one of those kind of central characteristics which has almost been, been developed through the process of evolution. It, it looks like optimistic people um, live longer than people who are not optimistic. They, they're more likely to recover from serious illness uh, because they're, they're not catastrophizing about the future after it. Um, they're more likely to, to, to read and respond to certain kinds of communications which will, make, which will buoy them up. So optimism is a really interesting feature of being what it is to be a human being. Uh, and it seems to be a good thing. But psychologists now talk about something which they call optimism bias, which is this is more than just kind of I want to wake up every day feeling good about what I can achieve today and you know, I want to do good things and I want to have a good life. This is something where people are, are downplaying kind of negative information in order to maintain that state. Um, and it's normally defined as something like this, where people overestimate the likelihood of positive events happening to them and underestimate the likelihood of negative events. So it's a kind of optimism, but a super optimism, where you're kind of inflating the possibility of good things happening to you and downplaying uh, negative things. And it's common uh, in society generally, but of course it's more common with some people than others. So if you ask people about uh, the probability of their marriage succeeding uh, compared to others, they will generally speak, some people will way overestimate the probability of their marriage succeeding compared to others. And generally speaking, people generally do it, but some people way overestimate. Uh, ask people about their startup businesses, whether they be successful or not. Again, you do find an optimism bias there. You know, a lot of businesses fail. Uh, many people, of course, people think that their own businesses will be the exception to the rule. Uh, ask people how long they're going to live. Generally speaking, they overestimate compared to what they think will be true of people generally. Uh, talk to smokers about the um, uh, probability that they will get some serious illness from smoking. 
they will be, they will they will think that they'll be the ones who won't get cancer. Uh, so optimism bias is an interesting picture of what it is to be a human being. Uh, we all seem to display it to some extent, but some people are really much more pronounced in this than others. And, and to me, there's a really interesting bit of uh, psychology to explore there, which is where does it come from? How is it maintained? And how does it work with things like uh, climate change and also COVID? You know, how does optimism bias operating there? You know, you know when we saw you know, infringements to the rules about, about social gatherings and so on. It's an interesting general issue for psychology. So is there a kind of optimism bias when, when and a, a, an aspect of a kind of biased personal vulnerability when it comes to climate change? Well, I think there is, because if you ask people about climate change, a lot of people say they're worried about it. But then you ask them um, about the probability of them being affected, um, as opposed to the probability of people from other countries being affected. Or if you ask them about the probability of them being affected compared to future generations, you do find this kind of marked difference, which is, uh, generally speaking, they, they they will give you a certain probability of them personally being affected by it, but it will always be much higher for other countries and much, much higher for future generations. Um, and that is an interesting issue. So, again, now there should be another poll connected to that. So all the, all the polls up to about this vulnerability, could you put those so that people can be filling those in as well? I think there's a there's a couple there. So that and, and and there's maybe three polls connected with this issue of vulnerability. So it'd be interesting seeing how you how you think about it. Um, oh, I've seen the results of the first poll. Do you think that global warming is happening? Oh, ninety nine percent yes from this. Mm. Well, it just shows that you're a much more concerned. Uh, audience, then, uh, so that's very interesting. Uh, do you think that global warming will affect you personally? Again, very interesting. So again, very different to, to, to what's coming out generally. Um, that was about 93%. Do you, do you think it will primarily affect other countries? So that's much more looking like 50, 50, slightly, slightly more towards and affecting future generations. Okay, very interesting again. So that's 70, jumping about 77, 23, very interesting. Uh, so, so those results from this audience are not typical of what we've been getting because when we ask people about affecting you personally, Generally speaking, in, in, a, in a sample, which because obviously this is a highly selected group because you're obviously interested in nature, you're interested in climate change, very highly selected. So the results look pretty different because generally speaking, what people are saying is that um, it's it's a much lower estimate of whether it will affect you personally, but much higher for future generations and, and, and other people. So what I was interested in doing was exploring the psychology behind that, that whole issue. Now, there's a couple of uh, interesting studies which are kind of relevant to this, which is there's been some work done on, on how people process climate change messages. And I think, you know, if, if anything's important, and, and I, let me also say, I think this is, was a critical issue with COVID as well, which is messages were not framed well, and they were framed in a way which encouraged 
a biased processing of young, healthy people, by the way, which is why there was such disregard for, for the rules among certain groups. But, but there is a really interesting bit of work here, which was, uh, so some people did some uh, what's called fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging of the brain when people process certain types of messages. And what they had to do was to estimate the probability of certain kinds of negative events occurring. And then they were told the real probability of, of the occurrence of that event. So you might be asked something like, what is the probability of you being burgled in the next year? And you give them an estimate and you say it's uh, 5%. Uh, and then you say, well, in the neighborhood you, you live in, in I, I live in Salford, in this particular area of Salford, it's 30%. Uh, and then what they're doing is they're measuring brain activities. You process this new information. And they also ask you then to, 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 to say again, in the light of the new information, what's the probability of the event occurring? Now, the results of this research, in some sense, were extraordinary, really, because they found that people were only likely to change their estimate if the new information was better than originally anticipated. So if it was worse, so if, if I think it's 5% and it's actually 30%, I don't really change or I change a tiny, tiny amount. Whereas if I think it's 5%, I'm, I'm actually told that it's only 1%. I go, oh, wow, 2%. So you're more likely to change the information only if the information is better than originally anticipated. But what was also interesting was that this bias, this cognitive bias, was reflected in the activity of the brain in that there was a reduced level of neural coding of undesirable information in a critical region of the frontal cortex. The frontal cortex is the bit of the front of the brain, which does all the, all the complex computational stuff. And the bit of the brain is called the right inferior prefrontal gyrus. So there's a bit of the brain, which is kind of, it's, what it's doing here is it's spotting the good information and responding, lighting up, getting a lot more neural activity when the information is really good, as if it's trying to catch that good information, the bad information, it doesn't want anything to do with it. It's just that it, 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 it go past. And I, I find this uh, research really interesting because, you know, it just seems to me that in the case of so many aspects of everyday life, like climate change, like COVID, like, like so many things, it's just so, we live in an information, you know, super highway and what a cliche, but, and there's so much information that what governs what we notice and what we don't notice. And are there any individual differences connected to that? And why do some people get messages instantly and other people kind of, they're just flying past them? So that's what I decided to do some uh, original work on, uh, which is into this business of selective information processing. Now, we did uh, a, a very simple experiment, but, but one which I think is potentially quite important. And what we did was we, we projected kind of articles about climate change onto a computer screen. And what we did was we eye-tracked people as they read these articles. They just had to read the articles. And, and some people were told that they'd be asked questions about them afterwards to see what they remember. Um, and we used this kind of eye-tracking method. So it's, 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 it's picking up without them knowing where, what exactly, how, how, how we're analyzing the eye-tracking fixations. But basically, every single fixation, 40 milliseconds, we're picking up exactly where they're looking at the message. We can tell exactly which word, which letter, which space. We can tell exactly where they're looking from doing this eye track. And what was interesting about these messages was that what we tried to do was to do the quotes, the, you know, the BBC balancing act. We had a, 
uh, a paragraph about about climate change. We said, look, the scientific consensus tells us it's happening, it's real, it's going to be devastating, blah blah blah. So that's the kind of bad news bit. You know, this that's the scientific consensus, not great news. You know, you want to stay optimistic. And, and then the other bit was the kind of other position, the attack on the science, saying, well, you know, they've been wrong about things before. There are contradictions in the data. It's the kind of the anti-position. And of course, the point about the anti-position is it's good news. It's saying, well, it's not really proven yet. You know, it's there is a big debate about it. So what we did was we eye tracked people when they read the bad news, the good news, uh, and we measured every single fixation on these paragraphs. We could tell exactly where they were looking for exactly what duration. Uh, and we and we measured one personality variable here, which was a simple one, which was underlying dispositional optimism. So dispositional optimism is not the same thing as optimism bias, but they're likely to be connected, although extraordinarily there wasn't much research on that. But if you're an optimistic person, does that affect what you see, what you look at, what you attend to in these messages? And the point about these fixations is there it's not people thinking, oh, God, I'm not going to look at this. This is in everyday life. Our, our eyes flick all over the place. Uh, you, we kind of notice things all the time. You know, we're, our, we're, we're drawn to certain things, but we're not necessarily consciously aware of it. Uh, and then when we do this thing, we end up with something that looks like this is called a hot spot analysis. And basically, red means you're really looking at that bit of the message. And the bigger the red bit, the more you're looking. Um, uh, uh, yellows, you're looking a bit. Uh, and there are kind of skips in between them called, called these kind of saccadic eye movements. And, and basically what this uh, shows you is that this is what it looks like for optimists on the left and non-optimists on the right. Now, there's a couple of things that should be pretty clear, I think, from that figure. I think the first thing is, you can see there's more red spots with the non-optimists. In other words, when you show them any messages about climate change, they're reading them more carefully. Optimists, you know, they know, it's about climate, you know, they know the messages about climate change. So, so the situation with, with is that they're kind of reading it quite quickly, actually. Non-optimists are, are, are spending more, more time on it. And the second thing about the non-optimists, you can see that the second paragraph, uh, blah, 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 which is the bad news item, there's more red bits on the second bit than on the first bit, the second paragraph for the non-optimists. Whereas the optimists, you see there's a slight reversal. That there's more red bits. There's fewer red bits overall, but there's fewer red bits on the, uh, there's more red bits on the first paragraph. You see where it says plague buyers that have damaged the, the body's credibility. And that was really interesting um, because this is just one person, you know, one person from each group. Um, but you can see that there was a tendency for the optimists to kind of look at the, uh, at, at the good news bit, the good news bit here being, hey, the science isn't so clear. It's been plagued by mistakes. There's all kinds of issues there. The non-optimists spent more time reading the whole thing. And they tended to fixate on the on the bad news, which is oh, the science is really, really, really clear. And that was the first time that it had been shown that a, a, a personality variable like dispositional optimism actually connects to how you read these messages in the first place. Uh, connects to, to actually what 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 you see. Uh, the results were were very interesting. Uh, statistically, this is what we found. Optimists spent less time attending to any arguments about climate change. 
Optimus has significantly shorter fixation duration. Fixation duration just means the amount of time you spend on any individual uh, period of looking. It's called fixation. The non-optimist on arguments for climate change. So when the arguments were, were saying, look, science is clear, Optimus spent significantly less time reading that bit. Optimus concentrated more on arguments against climate change. So when you look at this personality factor, uh, and you look at how people read messages, there does seem to be a difference between the two groups. And, and of course, I, you know, in, in my, with my naive excitement, I kept thinking, well, that's interesting, because you can start looking at, at, at people in everyday life and, and the, the occupations they pursue and the, the kinds of lives they lead as being a kind of critical variable. And I'm reminded that research in psychology and entrepreneurs, for example, say that there are two variables which distinguish successful from non-successful entrepreneurs. And the two variables are capacity for hard work and, secondly, optimism. I kept thinking, oh, is this going to explain a lot of the differences between certain kinds of business people and climate change, that somehow it's connected to their underlying personality variable and the way they're seeing the messages and what they see when they're presented with it. Because don't forget, this is on the screen in front of them. They can't avoid seeing it. It's there. Um, they're just seeing different things. And the, the implications of that, I mean, just think of the implications, which is how do we then design messages to people to make sure that everyone, regardless of their underlying personality, gets the important points? And again, it sounds like such a naive point. And yet, uh, in, in a little book I did uh, at that time called The Psychology of Climate Change, the extraordinary thing about it was when I looked at government campaigns, they hadn't really considered that as being an issue at all. How do, you, how do you get this message to the people who need to get the message if they've got a certain sunny kind of personality and which part of that sunny personality depends upon filtering out certain types of information to get on with their sunny type of life? It's a big, big issue. So that, that was one thing that we did. Uh, the other thing that we did, which, which was interesting, was we are, when we asked them to summarize the article, so in other words, we'd find these different fixations on the messages. When asked to summarize the article, two-thirds of the non-optimists framed the recall in terms of the arguments for climate change. So two-thirds of them, but 67% said this article is about global warming and high 95% of it is due to human activity. And don't forget, everyone saw the same types of paragraphs here, the good news, the bad news, the science, the argument against the science, everyone says all the same thing. But it's not just that the optimists and non-optimists have different patterns of fixation. When they were asked to summarize it, they summarized it differently. So the non-optimists said it's about climate change and science. Two-thirds of the optimists said it's about a debate. So what had they picked up from the two sides of the argument? They picked up that there are two different positions. Uh, they said it's about climate change, about trying to understand what's happening with the weather, and there are different points of view. So in other words, everyone saw the same articles, which was there were different points of view, deliberately put into the articles. But the optimists hinged upon that. That was the message they got. So all the time that you know, news broadcasters think about you know, debates and so on, I'll be talking about this with a vengeance with the smoking debate. That's what people get, which is, well, it's not proven. It's, there's another point of view. That's what the optimists say. The non-optimists get something quite different out of it.
the other question that we, that we asked was, what's the connection between optimism, bias, and sense of personal uh, uh, vulnerability? And I, this was very, very interesting. Now, you, again, your results here are really interesting because, you know, as I say, you're a highly selected audience, so you, you have a, a particular take on this, which which isn't what we find in this in this broader research in which people weren't tuning into a to a series of lectures on on nature and climate change. We found that optimists they reckon about a thirty six percent probability of being affected by climate change thirty six percent, about a one in three shot, i.e. less than half. Non optimists about fifty seven percent, and there was a difference between optimists and non optimists on, on almost every single reading. We had lots and lots of readings. And non-optimists were, were significantly higher, e- even higher on some. So in other words, there seems to be an underlying personality variable, which is connected to concept of personal vulnerability when it comes uh, when it comes to climate change. Uh, some people just simply don't think that there's a, a, less, a much less than half chance that they personally will be affected by it. Now, of course, they, they do think that people in the future will be affected by it. Uh, and other countries will be affected by it. And, and of course, you could argue that a lot of the kind of what you might call the iconography of, of, of climate change messages, you know, about, uh, you know, um, ice flows and polar bears and certain you know, low-level low countries has been doing a lot to, to reinforce that belief that it's not really about the here and now. It's not really about, you know, the fact that the UK is getting warmer, you know, because it gets warmer and, even the weather's more unpredictable. So some people have said a better term is climate chaos and kind of uh, uh, global warming because it gets people thinking differently about the unpredictability of the weather. But, and, and the argument is that some campaigns have really got people thinking about other, other parts of the world and the future generations. Some of the UK government's campaigns has been specifically about trying to work on, on the guilt of parents and grandparents in terms of children and grandchildren. In other words, all about the future. Instead of saying, "Look, this is going to affect us today, now," and and of course, from a psychology point of view, it's, it's quite different if you think that you're vulnerable rather than doing it in a more altruistic way for other people. And I think there are kind of issues there when it comes to you know the 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 effects of perceived vulnerability again on things like attention and so on that that that, that we need to think about. And just let me say, I should have almost said this at the start. I'm very active in, in this area, so. I, Part of the, the the point of this talk is to get you thinking about how we can how we can do things here in the light of, in some sense, the emerging evidence. And, and I'm thinking about these issues. And any audience I ever talk to, I'd say, look, it's up to all of us to think about how we can how we can deal with, with some of these issues. So, so the, the whole business about about campaigns. I mean, how do we get people to feel a, a heightened sense of personal vulnerability so that you know they take the whole thing in much more directly and and, and they process the whole thing much more directly. So uh, the implications of this bit is messages about climate change may be may not be getting through because of an inherent cognitive bias designed to stay in our mood. And this business of cognitive biases, as I say, I believe that there are a whole series of cognitive biases which were operating when it came to the processing of the COVID messages, which really, really were not helped by the government framing of the messages. I think they augmented the biases. So this is a general message about if you're if you're communicating to people. And they have biases which affect how they interpret the messages. How do you overcome those? How do you design the messages better? Um, uh, let me just. Um, and I think the other thing is, and I think this is this is kind of core 
to a whole series of campaigns, a more positive overall frame about possible solutions should increase both feelings of self-efficacy and visual attention to the underlying message. So many campaigns about climate change are based on the negative emotions, you know, guilt, fear, you know, uh, anxiety, and people, as I say, have got mechanisms for dealing with those, you know, including not even saying saying those bits in the first place. Instead of about the positive emotions, you're thinking about what would be achieved by getting people to to you know to, to you know to cycle to work and or walk, blah, 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 take more exercise, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, which is emphasizing the positive aspects. But I think the the, the really critical thing from the point of view of message and messaging and behavior changes, you have to persuade people that they can do something about the problem and their responses will make a difference. And of course, you know, some you know, anti-tobacco campaigns were successful with very, very high levels of fear because the message was very simple about what they could do. But the problem with those climate change campaigns, which have tried to elicit very high levels of fear, is they didn't make specific recommendations about what the behaviour would do. One UK government campaign ended with, see what you can do, which is as big as you can be. It didn't want to be prescriptive, but... Uh, you have to tell people what they can do uh, and that they can make a difference. That's called self-efficacy and that their behaviours will make a difference. That's called response efficacy. And you can only use high levels of negative emotion if you've sorted both of those issues out. So I think when it comes to any campaigns, and you might just look at any future campaigns about COVID or, or um, climate change to see whether all you know, those boxes have been ticked, self-efficacy, response-efficacy, and, and, and think about what emotions that they're trying to use. And one argument might be to appeal to optimists. You almost need to, to stress the positives, the positive emotions, uh, and then explain what they can do to generate those emotions rather than uh, uh, negative things which are just going to be skipped over anyway in the reading. Right. Um, and now will tell me when you need a break. But the next uh, broad theme is this business of our sense of uh, personal responsibility. Now, again, this to me is, 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 is an enormous issue. Um, uh, again, scientists and, and the, the people who have been charged with reviewing the scientific evidence at Lord Stern uh, are quite explicit. Human activities are a major driver of this rapid change in our climate, particularly patterns of consumption and energy use blah, 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 demand, uh, driven by consumer demand for higher standards of living. Uh, Unilever, you know, one of the biggest multinationals in the world, and, uh, came up with uh, a, a sustainable living plan. Uh, the, their argument was, look, you know, big companies can't be outside this debate. You know, it's the, they have to be part of the solution. You know, they have to think about what they can do. Uh, and they came, they came up with a kind of 10-year plan for 2010 about what they were going to do about greenhouse gas impact of their products uh, to be sorted, interestingly, by this year. Uh, so they did a whole series of things, invested a lot of money in this, reduced the greenhouse gas emission from the manufacturing chain, reduced deforestation, doubled the use of renewable energy, produced concentrated liquids and powders, reduced greenhouse gas emissions from transport, re reduced greenhouse gas emissions from refrigeration, and reduced employee travel. They, they did a lot of what they thought they could do 
in order to uh, reduce the greenhouse gas impact of their products by 2020. And what was the result of all of this? Uh, they found that the greenhouse gas footprint impact per consumer increased by 5% since 2010. So as a, as a, as a multinational, they tried to, to help consumers live more sustainable lives uh, and find that it was, the, it was the stuff, there was a lot of stuff they could do, and they, they did those things, but extraordinarily, it was consumer behavior was the thing that seemed to be uh, resistant to change. Uh, and their conclusion, which was very pessimistic, uh, was that we've made good progress in those areas under our control, but the big challenges are those areas not under our direct control, like consumer behavior. So it's this issue of personal responsibility. You know, uh, the manufacturers were doing something different, but consumers weren't behaving as they thought they would. And you see this uh, all the time, really, which is, you know, there seems to be this incredible gap between um, what's expected of, of you know, people in, in their role as, as consumers and the public uh, and, and, and behavior. And, and the reason, from a psychology point of view, this is really interesting is that it's not what people say. People say they really want to do everything they can to help. And of course, um, you know, there's been a lot of now public debate, you know, public um, proclamations about, you know, we're all willing to change, um, but the behaviour sometimes, not sometimes, <laughs> let's be absolutely frank, yeah, almost invariably seems to be at odds with it, except for certain groups. Um, now, this is, this is, you know, in some sense, not new. I mean, so. A few years ago, when Terry Leahy was CEO of Tesco, this is 2007, uh, this was Tesco, again, another very large company, wanted to do something about all this. Leahy in 2007 said, "Consumers, customers want to do more in the fight against climate change, if only we can make it easier and more affordable. So he said, look, the public are telling us they want to do something about climate change. This is, this is 13 years ago. You know, as a company, let's try and help them. Uh, and and Leahy drew upon all this market research to just look, consumers are ready to change. And Tesco at that time, for those who remember, introduced carbon labeling. Carbon labeling was very simple. It simply put uh, the carbon footprint of every, the idea was to put a carbon footprint on every Tesco owned label product so that you can look at a, a light bulb and look at the uh, carbon footprint and think, okay, uh, that's that. Here's the alternative. That's the carbon footprint. Which do I want? I want the one with the lower carbon footprint. Thank you very much. Uh, I've bought the one with the lower carbon footprint. And we, you know, in terms of the economics of, of, of consumer decision making, uh, there'll be a drive towards uh, low carbon. Uh, you know, and low carbon will be part of the whole business of, you know, is it good value for money? Is it a brand? Blah, 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 all that other stuff. But that will be a really, really important variable. Um, and they introduced this. Carbon labeling, and, and this was the huge undertaking by by Tesco, and this was the start of the green revolution. I mean, it's, uh, Leahy kind of announced it. You know, he had the backing of the prime minister. I mean, this was a big, big government thing. So this was a green revolution led by consumer demand to drive the market, and of course, it worked with health information on food, uh, which was quite dramatic in terms of how it was introduced. You know, when they started putting 
calories and fat content on, on certain foods. And it's like unbelievable, the change in habits. I mean, certain things that people just didn't realize were, were so uh, calorific and, and so fatty, they suddenly you know, they weren't keen on. Uh, so the idea was Tesco was going to do it with, with their own brand products. It took a long time to calculate the carbon footprint of each individual product. had to be certified by the Carbon Trust. Uh, and the idea is that consumers should now choose the low carbon footprint. But the question is, how did consumers actually behave? Well, they didn't do what they Tesco thought they, they would. Uh, they didn't buy the um, low-carbon products. You know, with the, the health information, the, 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 the impact of behavior was almost immediate with some, with some products. But with uh, carbon footprint, there wasn't this move towards the low-carbon alternatives. And at the time, I did some very simple research, which it was looking at people, looking at products. Uh, uh, and I found something quite important, which was, to be honest, when they looked at products, they hardly ever looked at the carbon footprint. Uh, and this is an example of what's called the value action gap, you know, the gap between people's expressed values and their behavior. Uh, and this is even when the action's clear, you're telling them, hey, carbon labels are good things. Go and buy the low-carbon product. But even there, it wasn't fine. So this is some research we did at the time, which was um, there's uh, three products just here. Uh, yellow is the light bulb, orange is the orange juice, and blue is uh, detergent. And there's three little sets of histograms. The one on the left is carbon footprint, the amount of time they spend looking at carbon footprint. And the middle one's the carbon footprint information and then other, other features. And you can see here, except in the case of the light bulb, I mean, the light bulbs, of course, are traditionally associated with the notion of, you know, you know, low energy or good for the environment. Thing. Apart from that, people hardly looked at the carbon footprint at all compared to other things. And we've done a lot of research since then. I'm, I'm just wondering, before I start this next bit, whether we could do the um, other polls now, all of them now, would that just be okay? Get all the polls into the room, yeah. Yeah, six, seven, eight. Yeah, I, I, I think so, because this is all relevant to the next bit. So six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, brilliant, brilliant. This is, this is kind of relevant to what I'm going to say. Just to try and get some information from you all, first of all, and I'll try and uh, look. Um, Okay, very interesting. Okay, that's natural causes. Okay, so yeah, again, for highly selected audience. Yep. Very interesting. Yep. Okay, so that, that's typically what we see. You know, 83% prefer low-carbon products to high-carbon products. Very interesting. So this is the converse, high-carbon to low-carbon. Okay, even more dramatic with this one. So only 
2%, one person thinks that they prefer high carbon to low carbon, everyone. Okay, really clear. Okay, so the next one is uh, about mitigating the effects. Okay, very interesting. 99%, yeah. Think yes. And it's <laughs> a slightly tricky question, which is, do you ever notice your expressed attitude and your behavior not aligned? <laughs> very interesting. And and yet, of course, you're, well, you're very honest, at least. Uh, most people do notice that. So absolutely fascinating. Well, you know, again, so, some interesting stuff there. I mean, most people, of course, when you ask them, do they prefer high carbon or low carbon, they go for low carbon every, every time. I mean, and, and you are very consistent in that. Uh, do you think it's important to, to mitigate the effects? Yes, you do. But again, something interesting. I've never asked that last question before, which is, do you ever notice a slight discrepancy? And you are really honest. 91% say, yeah, there is a, a discrepancy. And, and, and to me, this is the fundamental issue about climate change, which is, you are a very interesting set of people because you are very uh, like many other sets of people. Because, and this is the absolutely fundamental issue, which is people say they prefer low carbon. Uh, and yet when you put carbon footprint on um, products, you kind of not notice. Or I've done lots of research since, which is consistent with that. Um, uh, do you want to mitigate the effects of climate change? Well, of course you do. But you can notice this slight discrepancy. And this is what I've been doing a lot of work on over the last few years, which is what on earth is going on here and how can we do anything about it? Uh, in terms of behavior and action, I talk about this value action gap because obviously you're expressing a certain set of values, but you're noticing uh, the kind of gap with uh, behavior. And I think this is shown in all aspects of uh, life, really. Um, this is the stuff that's left behind at a, at a festival uh, last year. Uh, these, this is just plastic waste. You know, you, you, people say, "Well, young people in the future, you know, they're they're much more uh, sensitive about the environment and they care much more." And, and that's from just one festival, and that's the tents and stuff left behind. Another. I, when you look at that, I keep thinking people must still be there, but that's after they've gone. So, and, and yet, if you ask them about about plastic and waste and so on, people will declare that. Yeah, of course, they, 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 they don't want to leave that kind of stuff behind. Now, <laughs> this gets us into some, in my view, really interesting psychology. Uh, and it's so interesting that I've, I've had to trace it right back to the start to try to understand it. Um, and I hope you find this interesting because it's, it, it's kind of a thing which really gets me thinking about, about what profound difference we look like here. Now, everyone in psychology talks about a value-action gap, a discrepancy between attitudes and behavior. Uh, and it's certainly found in, in the environmental domain and the climate change domain with attitudes to carbon and behavior. Now, if you look at the definition of an attitude, um, the definition that's normally given is a mental and neural state of readiness organized through experience. So it's a mental and neural state exerting a directive or dynamic influence, something which influences the individual's response to all objects and situations with which it's related. So it's something in your head, it's a mental state of readiness, which affects your behavior in a whole series of domains. And that definition comes from 
a very famous American psychologist called Gordon Allport in 1935. And Allport really is the guy who, who, who developed this whole approach to attitudes, um, uh, who made it popular, and who made the, the measurement of attitudes the cornerstone of psychology and the cornerstone of everything else, because obviously every government uh, survey is based upon people's expressed attitudes, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone uses it. Now, I was interested in why it's done that particular way. Now, it's, it turns out to be a very interesting story, actually. So, before I tell you the story, this is how, this is this is pretty pretty basic stuff. But how do we measure attitudes? Well, we we do it as we've just done it. You ask people to report their attitudes. Usually, a Likert scale, a kind of scale. Sometimes it's uh, yeah, just a. It's usually a scale rather than a tick box, which is just you know how much how much do you like X rather than Y? How much do you prefer X rather than Y? I mean, you do that, people are consistent. You're even more consistent. 70% of participants report a preference for low carbon, 26% no preference. 4% of participants report a preference for high carbon, and that's absolutely consistent. Everyone states a, a preference for low carbon, the vast majority. Some are kind of towards the middle, and very few towards the high carbon end. Uh, and then people, it's very easy to measure. You know, we, we've just done it, and then we, we say, well, I know what your attitude is to X, and you know, blah, blah, blah. But as I say, there's this incredible gap between people's reported attitudes towards environmental issues and what they actually do, uh, which is a really big, big issue. So there are different ways of doing it. You can try and make your measurements slightly more complex. You can... Uh, Take your behavioral measurements differently. Of course, it's different if you take reported behavior, by the way, rather than actual behavior. But I'm interested in actual behavior, what people do rather than what they say they do. That's just, a, that's just something else to bear in mind. Now, what's interesting about Allport is he also said, now, don't forget, he's the guy who introduced this explicit reporting. You just have to report an attitude, then we've got to measure it. He also said, often an attitude seem to have no representation in consciousness other than a vague sense of need or some indefinite or unanalyzable feeling of doubt, assent, conviction, effort, or familiarity. So to me, this was a really curious quote, which is the guy who developed the measure, who says that we just need to report attitudes, also said they seem to have no representation in consciousness. Now, if they've got no representation in consciousness, why do you expect people to be able to report what their attitude is? To me, that didn't really make sense. So when I started thinking about this issue, I went and had a look at um, Olpo's written a very interesting autobiography. And in that autobiography, there's a beautiful description of, he was a shy guy from the Midwest who uh, had a very interesting, you know, kind of slightly uh, religious, not slightly religious, very religious, uh, upbringing and so on, uh, did very well at Harvard, got first. Um, and when he had just graduated, he wrote to Sigmund Freud, asking could he come and visit him in Vienna and suggested he was an American psychologist worthy of it. He was 22 at the time. And incredibly, Freud wrote back a handwritten note saying, yeah, pop along. So this shy guy turned up at Freud's office. He had the famous study with the couch, you know, all the, the famous rugs, all that stuff. Picture of Charcot on the wall, all that. All that. Um, and Freud, there was a slightly embarrassed silence. 
you know, Freud being a psychoanalyst, he uses silence therapeutically and diagnostically to get stuff out of people. And uh, Oprah was a shy guy, and he thought, I have to fill the silence with something. He started bubbling on about telling him a story of something he'd seen on the tram there, which was some four-year-old boy who wouldn't let this man sit beside him because he thought he was dirty. And he said, and, and Oprah's telling the story and saying, I think it was because the mum, the mum was really you know, over, overly clean starch. And I think the boy picked up this thing about cleanliness from the mum. And he was just doing it the full time. He was embarrassed. You know, he thought he'd say something, something funny and observant and witty and all that. And there was another little silence. And then Freud, in Oprah's eyes, turned to him with his sad therapeutic eyes and said, and was that little boy obsessed with dirty you? And, and Oprah was appalled. It's like, this guy's tried to sack a woman last night. You know, my motive for telling the story, my manifest motive is clear. I just want to make an observation. I want to fill time. I don't, want the, I don't like these pauses. And he thinks there's some kind of psychoanalytic defenses operating. He's trying to break through them by, by making an observation. And that, I have to say, when you read the autobiography, changed Oprah's view entirely. At this stage, he believed that attitudes could be unconscious. But he said, look, we're never going to make a science out of this. Because you know, he, he talked about psychoanalytic excess. He said Freud went too far. And Alport came back determined that any science of psychology he was going to do was going to be based on what people knew in their own heads because they knew themselves better than Freud did. That's where this whole thing of attitude came from, which is extraordinary in a way because that's the legacy we're left with in psychology, getting people to report their attitude to tell us what's in their head. But this business is and what happens if things in there are unconscious? It's left that unexplored. Now, it, because of, of, of the big psychology reaction against psychoanalysis, it stayed unexplored for a very long time. You know, psychologists didn't like talking about the unconscious. You know, how do we access it? You know, how do we get on it? Uh, until relatively recently, um, suddenly over the last couple of decades, things have been changed a little bit. And the reason it's changed a little bit is people have said, well, you know, the unconscious, you know, is another world, so to speak. But, but there are certain things we may be able to pick up on. And one thing we may be able to pick up on is people's association between concepts. Uh, and something was developed called the implicit association test. And this is well known in some domains, but, but not all domains. It's been, it's been applied to issues to do with race and ethnicity very recently. Um, and this IoT is a very simple test in which you ask people to press a couple of computer buttons uh, and certain things come up in front of you. Uh, we developed the first carbon IoT, and the carbon IoT simply comes up with certain items you have to classify as being either high carbon or low carbon. So is this a high carbon or low carbon? Big, big, big. And then words, evaluative words come up, like good, bad, all that kind of stuff comes up, and you have to classify them as good or bad. That is easy. Two very simple tasks. And then the complicated bit is when you put the two things together. So it will show you a low-carbon item with the word good on one set of trials, low-carbon with bad, and you press the keys. And it looks like people slow down when you put certain kinds of concepts together. If people have got very positive implicit attitudes to low-carbon, they respond quicker when low-carbon is paired with good than when it's paired with bad. And as I say, this has come up. Slightly controversially to begin with, when people were doing a race IoT, when you do um, 
black originally in the Harvard IAT, black faces and white faces were thinking about. People seem to be quicker at doing certain combinations than others. But it gives you a, a very, very simple reaction time measure. Uh, hard to fake. People try to speed up. But when you speed up, you often make errors. And if you make errors, that, that comes in as a penalty uh, as well. So it's, it's a bit harder to fake, certainly a lot harder to fake than self-report measures. Now, what's interesting is if you do that with IAT, oh, sorry, this is what it looks like. So a bulb comes up like that. You categorize that as low carbon or high carbon, very simple. And then these are the complex trials. Is that good or high carbon or bad or low carbon? So you have to press the right button. It's low carbon. You see the word bad. You almost have to ignore the word bad because you're categorizing that as, as, as low carbon. So, so you do that, you end up with a measure, uh, which is called a D score, a different score in terms of your, your uh, reaction times onto the different trials. So this is called the implicit association test, and it gives you something, a, a, a D score. Now, what's really interesting is you can have people's reported attitudinal measures, uh, which is like something you, you've just done, and then you can do this implicit measure. And the point about these implicit scores is people may have some feeling state, but, but they're not sure. Uh, and if you go on the, pro there's a site on the Harvard uh, website called the Project Implicit website, you can test your attitudes to a whole range of things. I don't think we've got a carbon IAT up there yet, uh, but you can test certainly your, your implicit attitude to a whole series of things. And people, I have to say, are often nervous when they do it because they don't know what's going to come out and what's not going to come out. Now, what's interesting when you do that with carbon, and many other domains, and try to correlate, look at the size of the uh, response um, in the explicit, i.e. what they report, and their implicit measures, there's no significant correlation. So it's what people report as their attitude to low carbon doesn't, isn't significantly really the strength of, of what comes out in this implicit test. And there seem to be many surface greens in the world <laughs> with a reported positive attitude to low carbon but actually a positive implicit attitude to high carbon. Um, so there's a lot of people who, who say, look, they really care about low carbon stuff. Um, when you do it on the IAT, that's not the way it comes out. And in some talks I give, I, I like to show some of the advertising from the last few centuries, last few decades, about high carbon lifestyles, you know, and you kind of think, well, maybe it's not that surprising that, that people have got such a, such a positive inner feeling about certain kinds of things, you know, uh, because of, of the way advertising works. But and, and, and uh, again, raises really interesting issues about how we how we undo that. Um, what I argue is that understanding these conflicted individuals may be absolutely critical, um, because I think they're more common than you might think, um, and. Really importantly, they haven't been identified a group as a group by uh, or, or been miscategorized by DEFRA, you know, the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and everyone else. Because at the moment, in terms of government campaigns, in terms of uh, advertising campaigns, people are not recognizing that people may have a set of attitudes which are held unconsciously at odds with what they report. Um, so they're not being properly categorized at the moment, and that is an interesting issue. Now, what's really interesting is 
Yeah, and uh, again, if you're interested, just go on um, my other my university website or my .com website. You, you'll see a, a lot of these, a lot of papers on this. I've been doing a lot of work in the last few years about trying to work out what predicts behaviour under different circumstances. Now, in some sense, this whole way of thinking has had a big boost from a um, uh, a behavioural economist called Daniel Kahneman, who, of course, won the Nobel Prize for uh, behavioural in, in, in economics for his work in behavioural economics who did a, a book on this uh, uh, in 2011 called Thinking Fast and Slow. And, and what Kahneman, because it resonates so closely with our own work on this, he argues that there are two systems of human cognition. One he calls system one, which is the fast, unconscious, unthinking system. Um, and the other system two, which is the kind of reflective, conscious uh, system that, that, that we, we often use. And this ties in directly with, with, with the work we've been doing on implicit and explicit attitudes. Um, and the point is that there, there's many pro processes in everyday life. We, sorry, first of all, we think of ourselves in terms of our system two processes. You know, we have attitudes and values about certain things rather than other things. These are the decisions we're going to make. A lot of what we do in everyday life is, is, is driven by system one responses. System one, uh, in, in, in Kahneman's terminology, he describes it as a workaholic. It's always beavering away. Um, and System two often responds to the decision system one makes. And I did a, a book a few years ago on, I'll just show you it, called Our Racist Heart, looking at how system one and system two operate in decision-making related to ethnicity. And it looks like, again, as in the carbon domain, the implicit and the explicit scores do not correlate. The implicit scores predict certain kinds of behaviours which are then weirdly endorsed by system two, the conscious decision. So this whole operation of these two systems, I would argue, and thank goodness Kahneman now argues, that is critical to understanding climate change, critical to understanding racism, critical to understand so many other things, which is, this is the, it seems to me to be the essence of the problem, which is everyone wants to do something, they think their attitudes are aligned, Tesco, the whole carbon labeling idea was this was Terry Lee. He's saying that people's attitudes are like this. Let's give them the information. Life will change. He gave them the information. Life didn't change. So we need to think about other kinds of approaches. Now, what do we know? Well, we know that the IAT, the implicit measures, are better predictor of spontaneous behaviors when the behavior is under any kind of cognitive, emotional, or time pressure. Um, so, for example, uh, supermarket shopping. Five seconds. That's the amount of time it takes you to make up your mind about a product. You're not deliberating for much longer than that. So it has to be pretty instantaneous if you're going for low carbon. Um, and let me ask you a question. Well, it's going to be a weird question because I'm not going to know an answer I get. We did a lot of work looking at time pressure on product choice. Have a guess what the main variable of products is when you put people under time pressure. What do they go for? Surprise, surprise, recognize brands. They go for the brands they immediately recognize. Uh, they go for those anyway, put them under time pressure, even more so. Something they immediately, that's why, you know, repeat, 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 television advertising, blah, blah, blah. It's just getting the products in front of you all the time. And that's what you choose, especially when you're under time pressure. Why is emotional coping the center important? Well, if you're doing shortlisting and there's any kind of pressure on, on time, you have to get through 100 candidates, a lot of pressure. Uh, again, implicit, the yeah, system one loves it. It's going to give you an instant 
kind of, it's, I can't even describe it as a gut reaction because I don't think we're even necessarily kind of gut-wise or emotionally aware of what that implicit attitude is, but there's something going on there which is going to push in certain candidates forward. And, and the point is that IT is a much better predictor of behavior and sensitive demands. When it came to our work on racism, what people reported was no predictor of their choices at all. Uh, and as you see now, I similarly with uh, in the environmental domain. So here, here's just a, a hint of uh, some of the work we have uh, we've done in this implicit attitude to carbon footprint. Uh, so in other words, the, the IAT score predicts choice of low carbon products, particularly under time pressure. If you put people under any time time pressure and give them a choice, they're much more likely uh, to go for the high carbon products. Uh, rather than low. So they're explicitly saying they really like low, but uh, their implicit scores, much less positive, often not related to what they're saying, uh, and uh, that's not what they go for. Uh, implicit, uh, this was interesting. We, we looked at, we presented people with climate change images, we measured their explicit attitudes, their implicit images, just to see what they fixated on. We found that implicit attitude, not what they reported, predicted whether they looked at climate change images within the first few microseconds, which again, interesting. Um, and it also seems to affect uh, first fixations on carbon labels. If you've got a very strong implicit attitude to low carbon, you're more likely to look first at carbon labels rather than those either who have got high explicit attitudes or those without strong low implicit attitudes. Yeah, strong pro-low carbon attitudes. So the whole point about this way of thinking is, look, you know, for, for like 50 years, psychologists have been wringing their hands about this value action gap, about saying that values don't correlate with people's behavior. Uh, and therefore, it's hard to change behavior, you know, because there's all these weird discrepancies. What this work is about is saying, look, maybe the reason for this value action gap is because we've been measuring the wrong kind of value. Perhaps it's these implicit things we need to measure. Perhaps Alford was right the first time around when he said we may hold attitudes without any conscious representation. And we have to drill down to kind of get at those. And that could change everything if we did that. Now, of course, if you do that, then there's a really, really interesting thing to say, look, information isn't simply enough. You can't just put a carbon label on something and assume that people have got the right attitude. Perhaps we need campaigns in which we change implicit attitudes. And, and, and that's a really interesting and very, very current domain. Um, there's been a bit of work in some domains showing that you can change implicit attitudes with the right kind of material. And uh, this last month, I was going to say this month, is, it's still June, yeah, so May, June, in the general environment behavior, I've got a paper on that, on, on, on using kind of emotional uh, film clips from um, Goes an inconvenient truth to say, can you impact on implicit attitudes? Can you change people's implicit response to certain kinds of low carbon lifestyles products using material? And the answer is you can. You know, over how long does it endure for? What kinds of range of choices does it um, uh, affect? You know. How might you do it not using uh, experimental material? We've just got a grant to look at educational programs. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of educational programs to encourage sustainability in the past. But what we're specifically doing is saying, look, not just does it impact on, on 
kids' behaviour, but can you actually change these implicit attitudes you measured using these techniques that we use? So what we're trying to do is trying to work out what additional component we might have to think about if we're going to work on uh, behaviour change campaigns. How can we how can we do something a little bit different here? No, I'm going to do something which is really weird now. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by it because it just seems to me that there is a parallel here. Um, and it's a, a weird parallel, but I, and, and I did, again, another book I did in 2019 called The Conflicted Mind. I did talk about this issue there. But because it seems to me there's, a, there's been a kind of intellectual revolution in the last few years, which is um, the unconscious was explicitly ignored by psychologists for a very, very long time. Um, and suddenly we're thinking, well, maybe there are aspects of human experience and human life which we're not fully aware of. And we may have to drill down to it. But what I like to say is, well, it may have been ignored by academic psychologists for all those years but it wasn't ignored by all psychologists. And there's one person who's really interesting in this respect called Ernest Dichter, who was a, a psychoanalyst from Vienna who came to the US during the war, really, and started working in the advertising industry. Now, Dichter is very interesting from a number of points of view. He worked on a couple of very, very big campaigns, Dub Soap for what was one of them early on. But his, his enormous success, if you want to call it success, was on promoting smoking, selling tobacco. Uh, and Dichter came with an interesting view on smoking, which he, he argued that the campaigns up to the time when he came along focused on the wrong things. It was all about taste of cigarettes, you know, mild versus not mild, etc., etc. And he said the problem with all of that was Taste is a minor consideration. And he said, if you want to market something like tobacco really effectively, you need to work out what smoking means. You need to work out what psychological functions it satisfies. Um, you need to work out how people really think about cigarettes. And it's not, a, you can't just ask them. And again, it's so, I was going to say ahead of its time, but in some sense, so, you know, behind their ear, you know, the, the it's like Freud asking people to, to explain, get people to explain their neurosis to them, and it wouldn't work. You know, I mean, we, we, we come up with explanations for all kinds of things, but that doesn't say that in some sense that's got any important instrumental role in, in, in why the thing's happening. Um, so Dicty was trying, really trying to get out how people felt about these things. A common thing he would use is get people to talk about their first experience of a cigarette, to try and dig a little bit deeper about what cigarettes are about, you know, why people use them. Um, and he said the campaign should be based around that. And uh, he came up with a whole series of really interesting psychological aspects of this, but some of them, and, and you'll see why this is all relevant to climate change in a minute, some of the things he came up with are self-reward, you know, with cigarettes. I've never been a smoker, but, you know, you can witness my whole family smoke so you know it's a self-reward system you know it's a legitimate excuse for interrupting work and he said it's an interestingly kind of childlike in that sense you know you can reward yourself and you feel like you deserve one so 
then again, he said it's, it's something to do with bonding and connectedness, you know. There's the warm glow, you know, it's, it's something primitive about human beings gathering around a fire, you know. And, and again, you know, he, there was a whole series of campaigns based on that. You're never alone, one from a long time ago from the 50s. You're never alone with a strand, you know. It's like there's connection there. And he said, well, it's also uh, uh, another way of relieving tension as a self-adapter, you know. When we're nervous, we may touch our ear, we may touch our lips, we may touch our nose. These are all self-adapter, self-comforting movements. He said, well, you know, put a cigarette in your mouth, that's oral gratification. It's a self-adapter, but in another way, you know, it does all that. And what he's saying is, look, there are a whole series of things, you know, connectedness, a reward, um, relieving tension, and campaigns should be based around that. Now, you might just think, well, hang on, the guy's a psychoanalyst. This is just fanciful nonsense. But obviously, you know, in some sense, the proof of, of this guy's behavior change campaign is it, it proof is what's he saying? Proof is in the pudding. You know, did it actually work? Did he sell millions of cigarettes? I'm just reminded that in the 1960s, you know, more than half the American population smoked. This was ludicrously successful. You know, when you think about behavior change, my God, this guy did it. You know, what can we learn from all of this? Um, well, uh, just a couple of uh, interesting bits. I mean, uh, what one thing you might do if you, if you think about why it was so successful, you might look at some of the campaigns. Um, one of the big campaigns, of course, was Marlboro, and then you know, as the uh, evidence for the relationship between smoking and cancer got got uh, more prominent, you know, Marlboro lights, you know, a whole series of lights. And of course, when you ask about Marlboro, if for anyone who's old enough, they'll remember the famous Marlboro man, you know, the cowboy, you know, rugged, good looks, and all that stuff. Um, there's a little bit more to the uh, adverts uh, than, 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 than kind of meets the eye, really, um, if if you look uh, carefully at them. Um, and 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 this is the whole depth psychology, and this is this is the dictor influence. This is the whole business of some of it. You know, the whole point about complex. Advertising images is we don't see everything in, at, at one point. You know, we, we think we see this is a picture of a, a cowboy running up horses. This is dead easy. There's since we have a number of horses running and the cowboy's got a sort of ready. It's all very straightforward. It's just marble man selling the rugged wild west or, or, or midwest to, to people. But people have said, well, there's a little bit more to it than that. Because what um, Dick was saying is, look, if um, Smoking, you know, one aspect of it is a self-adapter. You know, one aspect of it is a way of, 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 you know, when you're a little bit stressed, calming yourself of, you know, kind of oral gratification. Then, way, surely what you might do is like induce a little bit of nervousness, you know, uh, at some level in, in, the, in the consumer. But not at a conscious level, because if you do it consciously, people think, hey, this guy's trying to manipulate me. Or whatever. It's like, this is so obvious. So what you do is you do it. You do it a little bit more subtly than that. You embed stuff in the pictures that he says, like we will react to. We're not consciously react to it, but it's there, waiting to be reacted to. Now, if if I could see you all, I would ask you. This, in fact, I should have had a poll on this. Do you see anything interesting in that in that picture? Well, um, I hope it's not too fanciful to say there's a couple of weird little bits and pieces in there. Uh, there's a couple. First of all, the thing that looks like a like a horse let me go back you see behind the main horse you know in front of the cowboy it just looks like a horse at first sight but actually close up it doesn't really look like a horse it looks like um a wolf 
yeah, it looks like a wolf. What's the wolf? What's the wolf doing between the cowboy and the horse? Uh, well, it's you know a couple of interesting things. It's kind of so you could ask people what their associations of wolf is. You know, it's a wolf on its own. It's a lone wolf. Wolves hunting packs. It's a it's a pack animal. So this is one that's been cut off from the pack. It's running. So the lone wolf, you know, is that kind of trying to induce a little state of oh my goodness, in this life we're all alone, you know, it's, we're isolated. <laughs> it's like, you know, where's my group? Where's my social group? Where's my pack? It's like, uh, so that's one slightly weird image. And another slightly weird image is the clouds at the back. You can see they've been kind of shaded in there a little bit because they're not just clouds. They're clouds with little faces in them. They're not just ordinary faces. They're kind of ghostly little faces. You know, it's not not quite right. You know, it's like, and there's something a bit weird going on there. In, in other words, once you start with a psychological understanding of what cigarettes, psychological functions they do, you then think about adverts to somehow, to somehow deal with that, to, to play with those notions. Uh, and, and, and to me, this is interesting because, you know, Dick Deere clearly wasn't afraid to discuss unconscious motivations. He was a psychoanalyst. Uh, while academic psychology was saying we can't go there, he, he, was, he was going there. He was saying he was not afraid to disregard people's self-report. Almost if you find point one contentious, point two, I just find so obvious, you know, which is like he, he, he did a lot of interviews with people and said, if we're interested in behavior change, we shouldn't really listen to what we're saying. He said people have got great stories as to why they do things, but the stories might not be, might not be that accurate. Uh, so, so that's something I want to bear in mind, which is, you know, and again, in the spirit of we're not, we've not got a way of at least probing unconscious associations between things. So if we're thinking about what climate change campaigns of the future might look like, apart from dealing with you know, response efficacy, self-efficacy, all that stuff, optimism, all that stuff, do we need to start thinking about how we sell care for the environment and so on? Now, and sometimes people said, well, Attenborough's done it with, with waste. I mean, all those powerful images of waste at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, amazing. And yet, was it enough, you know, given those campsites, young people at campsites? Well, they clearly haven't quite got it. You know, so how do we think about this? That's one thing. But also about tobacco, again, what's really, really interesting uh, is the way the tobacco industry, and the mirror here with climate change is extraordinary, of course, uh, in the 19, early 1950s, uh, the evidence for the causal relationship between smoking and lung cancer was already becoming very clear. Uh, so the tobacco companies wanted to open a debate about the effects of smoking and health. And they created something called the Council for Tobacco Research in 1953 to fund research. So again, just think of the parallel with climate change. All this, all the science says one thing. But there's all this counter debate here, funded, of course, by, by certain kinds of uh, companies. Now, I suppose what I find most interesting, because I, 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 I did a little bit of work on, on the history of this, was trying to work out how they went about doing it and who was involved in the process. And the really interesting thing was the role of psychology and related disciplines in presenting the anti-science case. The first person 
to, to really argue against the, the causal link with Dichter himself. He says, look, okay, you may see a statistical association between smoking and lung cancer. It's not the cigarettes, it's the guilt, it's society's fault. You're making smokers feel guilty, and the guilt's really uh, damaging them. And that's the, the, there is a confounding variable, which is guilt. And then uh, there's a guy called Hans Selye, who's a very, very famous academic. Uh, didn't win the Nobel Prize, but came, according to some people, very close at times for his work on stress. He said, uh, funded by the tobacco companies, that uh, stress that kills. Uh, some people suffer unduly from stress, and those people tend to smoke. And it's the stress that's the causal link. Selye was paid, first of all, for writing a memorandum for a tobacco company, uh, talking about the problems in, in inferring causality from a statistical uh, association. And, and that, in some sense, he, he showed his worth by doing that, and then was, his research was funded. And then in the UK, probably the most, probably the most famous psychologist, actually, of the last 60 years, a guy called Hans Eisenberg, um, suggested it wasn't necessarily stress. He said there are certain, well, it wasn't just stress. He argued that it was certain personalities which are prone to stress, and they're, they're also the type, they've also got the type of personality profile which makes them prone to smoking. And it was the, this confine now was personality. Now, what we know subsequently is that um, Isaac was paired hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds uh, to do this work and come up with these ideas. And there's a, in The Conflicted Mind, I review uh, a kind of book um, uh, by Isaac in which he attacks the statistical data, which is, of course, it was pretty clear at the time, is crystal clear now, uh, kind of arguing this ridiculous, well, if, if you read the, the, the rhetoric he uses, I mean, ridiculously overstated alternative position, but we didn't know that he's being paid in secret accounts by the um, tobacco companies to do it. And of course, I'm also reminded that, I mean, there is a huge irony in, in, in the fact that when psychology had moved away from the unconscious, the tobacco companies were employing this guy, Ernest Dichter, who was specifically targeting the unconscious in his tobacco companies. But in addition, <laughs> paying one of the greatest critics of Freudian psychology, Freud famously, um, I think famously wrote a book called The Decline and Fall of the Freudian Empire, attacking Freudian psychology, attacking the unconscious, and then doing this alternative scientific take on, on the relationship between uh, science and lung cancer, which is, in retrospect, quite extraordinary. But I think there are lessons here about, uh, about what we need to do with climate change. Okay, so to, to kind of summarize kind of everything up, a, a couple of points. I think we need to help explain the science better. I think that's in terms of the psychology of climate change. We have to explain the science better and clear up conceptual confusions because it's not just Donald Trump and the man on the bus who are confused. Many people are confused. And as I say, it's extraordinary the way once the weather goes a bit cold and windy, as it has today in Salford, suddenly you asked me to draw predictions for how the uh, climate's going to change, and I've become much more optimistic about it. So we need to explain all that, and that climate change is a, is a, a broad overview of what's happening and not just individual variations in the weather. The second thing, and I think this is a really interesting 
thing, which is we need to overcome optimism bias. Uh, this is really interesting. We can't just scare people, of course. Uh, Greta does say uh, from time to time that this house is on fire, which is pretty, uh, pretty clear. Um, optimists will find a way around just not saying that. And it's not just that they say it and think, I will choose to ignore it. They won't say it. This gaze fixation stuff is quite extraordinary to watch because it's almost as if they're anticipating what's coming up and their eyes just flick. And this business of overcoming this flicking movement of the human eye to stuff that it wants to confirm its it beliefs, the confirming bias, the affect heuristic, where we respond to certain kinds of things. We need to think much, much, much more carefully about this. And as I say, uh, with the COVID crisis, to see a government which was using apparently psychologists to design the messaging, how could they have got it so wrong? Uh, because they kind of, from the first messages, in order presumably to, to, to reassure people, they were saying, well, it won't affect everyone, or it won't be serious for everyone. And then young, healthy people just thought, well, it's not going to affect me at all, and behaved accordingly. So pe people are just getting this wrong. Um, you need to take into account that human beings are not fully rational uh, processes of information. They're subject to all kinds of biases. We have to understand the biases, and we have to fight against them. We need to increase people's feeling of self-efficacy and response to efficacy when it comes to their actions. They're critical to making a difference. I think when it comes to climate change, you have to spell out exactly what they should be doing and explaining that, that those actions will actually make a difference. You know, would it matter if we all cycle to work? Were it possible? Would it all matter if we you know, uh, turned the thermostat on our house down? Would it all matter if we did X, Y, Z? We need to explain these actions, what we can do, and the impact they're going to make. Uh, what else can we do to encourage the green revolution, the psychology of climate change? Uh, I think self-reported attitudes to carbon might lull us into a false sense of security. I think it lured Leahy in. I think it lured Unilever in. I think it's lured the British government in several times. Everyone says we're ready to change. Measures of interest and attitude might give us a slightly different take on the whole thing. We might think uh, people perhaps and not quite ready to change, what would a campaign look like to make them more ready? We need to understand that many people have implicit and explicit attitudes to carbon that are dissociated. To me, that is a really interesting issue, which is what happens if you believe that, you know, you have a set of beliefs that you think characterize you, but there's something inside beavering away, in Kahneman's terms, the workaholic system one, which is getting you to do all kinds of things. I mean, I was amazed by the way that your estimate of your expressed attitude and your behavior in your life. 91% of you said that you had noticed that, which is kind of encouraging. And as I say, I've never asked that question before. I'm thinking of pursuing that as a line of inquiry, which is we, we notice it. I, I notice, of course, I notice it in my own life uh, that things don't kind of line up. And then the question is, you know, you know why don't I have a kind of weird cognitive distance about it, which, which makes me change my behavior more? More, more readily. It's a, it's a really interesting, uh, really interesting issue. Uh, so, so what can we do about it? Um, can we see the next one? Oh. Try and move that cursor. Okay, I'm trying to remember what it says. Uh, 
I, I see, oh, yeah, we, we, we need to find new ways of identifying these individuals. Because if you think that, you know, so many government campaigns are based upon doing these segmentation analyses of groups, being into various profiles and then thinking about how we target them through, you know, media consumption, how we target them. But, but there's no attempt to, to measure these implicitudes at the moment to say, look, well, if someone is, is, is got positive implicitudes and positive attitudes towards low carbon, well, they just, they, they literally just need information. But, but what else would these other groups look like? And, but in order to do that, we need to know how big each of these proportions are, how many people are in each set, how they divide by social class, how they divide by political affiliation, etc. All the other things which divide up, we just have to have no no information about that at the moment uh, yet. And on the basis of that, then we could think about different strategies for different groups and countries, and the barriers might be different. Like I got an opportunity to do some some international work on this recently. Uh, let me think of countries. The countries were uh, India, Brazil, the US, the UK, maybe one of them. Um, the interesting relationship between implicit and explicit attitudes varied quite dramatically in some of those. And of course, the point is that in some countries like Brazil, people's reported attitudes to the environment are very, 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 very positive. But Implicitly, there's something really quite complicated going on there. They were probably the most discrepant with all kinds of interesting issues, therefore set up about what a, what a, what a climate change campaign would be like. Now, we need a global revolution. Uh, and, and again, we're only starting to think now about, you know, when people talk about the problems of a global revolution, people talk about, well, people are, you know, China has got an emerging middle class, you know, it's about satisfying you know, the increased consumer demands of this emerging middle class. It's always framed in the same kind of way, but, but there is a real interesting issue about you know, you know, the role of consumer advertising in different countries and the way that those values are being established and developed in those different places and the implications that has for behavior. So you know, the way one might try to devise campaigns for different parts of the globe really might be quite different. But, but I suppose what I'm presenting today is saying that this is something that we need to think about. You know, this is an additional variable which doesn't seem to have been, have been built into, into, into current, current uh, thinking. Uh, because it just seems to me that, um, the, and the reason the implicit stuff is so important, you know, it gets down to the most basic level. What do they see when they look at something? What do they attend to? You know, a news thing comes up about something. Where exactly are they looking when they see the pictures? How would they sum it up? How would they describe it? How does that in increase their 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 perceived vulnerability to what's going on? It just seems to me there's so many unexplored, unexplored issues here that, that haven't really been addressed before. And obviously the really big one, that's why I put it big things, is we need to work on changing our implicit attitudes to carbon products and lifestyles by influencing our associate underlying associative networks. To me, that is the challenge. You know, in Kahneman's terms, system one, system two, we need to change system one. System one goes on track today. It means that so many of our decisions in our everyday life are guided by this unconscious, quick, thoughtless system. You know, but you know, if so, that's what we need to change. And our little study uh, published this month suggests, yep, we can't do something about it. And why did I mention all the smoking stuff? Well, 
The smoking industry showed that such a change is possible with significant behavioral modification. It's one legacy. Because when you think of tobacco, pre-Ernest Dichter and after Ernest Dichter, the change he made was astronomical for that aspect of behavior, that form of behavior, which is, gives you cancer, which leads to an early death, which now Muslims recognize as like socially incredibly undesirable. How did he do that? Well, what he didn't do was he didn't base the, all of the campaigns on simply what people told them. He said, I'm sorry, the human mind is not layers to it. And if we want to do something about climate change, then maybe we need to confront what these other layers are. And we need to think about how we get people uh, to change implicitly as well as explicitly. I think people already, or most people, are, are thinking seriously that this is a big issue. And Greta Thunberg's done an amazing job of getting into the public domain, getting people talking about it. But is talking about it enough? You know, is that, is that enough? I mean, you, you could argue, well, seeing other people concerned, seeing young people concerned is, is an incredible emotional draw to all this, and that's going to be a mechanism of deep change, and it might well be, but we don't necessarily know that. And it just seems to me that there's something we kind of really need to think about here. Um, and well, the last thing is a little plug. Uh, I did a book last year called Psychology of Climate Change with uh, Laura McGuire. Uh, and as I said, I've done other books as well in this domain. One was called, Oops, Why Aren't We Saving the Planet? And the stuff on implicit racism is called Our Racist Heart. And there's also a general one called. And that's really all I wanted to say. And Niall tells me that you will now ask me questions, which I'm more than happy to uh, Professor B. Fascinating talk. Um, really, really interesting stuff. So I've just got um, some questions from the participants. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna ask you here now. Okay. Okay. And, and do I speak the answers yes. now? Yeah. 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 I, I just, so yeah. the first question is from Carl, and Carl's asked, "What would you personally recommend to read with regards to the science behind climate change? Any books or articles or things like that?" Ooh, there's a, a lot of very uh, interesting books out there. Um, let me see some of our, our, I did a little bit of recommended reading in this book here, I think. I think what I mentioned was, let me just check. Um, let me see what I mentioned. And, um, there's a book by Marshall. Um, this is, so these are general books. They're all connected to psychology, but a bit more of the science as well called Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change, which is an interesting one. Um, uh, most of the ones here are psychology. But if you're interested in, in the stuff I talked about, about um, so-called debates, there's a brilliant book by Oreskes, O-R-E-S-K-E-S, and Conway called Merchants of Doubt, uh, which, which was really good. But I mean, if you're interested in the science itself, I mean, although it looks daunting, I always think those IPCC reports, to read it from the horse's mouth is a really good place to start. If you want to see the, the summary of the science rather than the stuff around the science and how people are reacting to the science, I think those IPCC reports are really interesting. And, and I, I should also have said, by the way, that uh, they're in the process of establishing something hopefully to parallel the IPCC called the International Panel of Behaviour Change. Uh, and, and there's been two meetings so far which have been held at the UN in Paris that 
unit, which is the United Nations Environment Programme. So I've been invited to be on the science committee there. So the idea behind IP, IP, I can hardly say the acronym, IPPC will parallel the IPCC, which will summarise the kind of existing state of play on this. So I'm hoping that my way of thinking will, will have a little bit of a, get a bit of traction really there. But, but I, I think I would advise Carl to, to, to look at the IPCC reports because I think that summarizes stuff. It, it kind of seems like hard going sometimes, but rather than reading always, you know, secondhand accounts of it, I think it's, it's good because I think when you read it, bearing in mind that, that extremely likely means scientifically as good as you get, you think, oh, my God, it's pretty clear <laughs> what's happening here, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and to react accordingly. 100%. Um so after this lecture, you're going to be emailed a recording and we're going to send a document with all the, the links and books that are mentioned as well. So hopefully that that's helpful. Um, the next question is from Jan, Jan Eric, and he has asked, is there any research on what is behind or forms implicit attitudes? It's a really, really good question, actually. And, and there, there, there is quite a lot. I, I mean, for a while, people just say, look, the, the problem with implicit attitudes is it's affected by the process of socialization. You, know, you kind of build them up over the course of a life. So everything you've been exposed to, uh, it's a whole series of associative connections. So, you know, depending upon your age, you know, all of those years or decades of consumer advertising gives us little bits of feelings about, about certain kinds of things and so on. Uh, it's affected by your early experiences, affected by your educational system. Um, um, and, and for a long time, people thought that Expressed attitudes are, are kind of easier to change because you can change reported attitudes, you know, through quite simple interventions. And obviously, people are now thinking about how do we can can we change implicit attitudes through shorter, concentrated things. So at the moment, we've got a, a, a little research grant to look at the effects of, of an educational program in the northwest of England on on, you know, on on primary school kids on trying to change implicit attitudes towards sustainability in the environment. So that's that's something we started in January of this year. We ran the program for three months, ready to test, just as lockdown happened. <laughs> so we're starting again next January uh, because that will be really interesting. Which is, you know, what is the scope for change now? Do I think that you can change? You know, I, I believe that you know associated connections build up through time. Of course they do. What what what's but what can we do to kind of fix this? You know, what can we do to, to get, give people the same buzz, the same inner buzz when they see certain low-carbon things as they see high-carbon things? To me, it's a really, really interesting mm -hmm. issue. I sometimes show a Virgin Atlantic kind of advert whenever I, I talk about it. It's any wonder that some people still get excited about taking flights to foreign places and drive big cars. Now, I've got a little video I sometimes show which – you just think, oh, my God, because that reminds you of your childhood, reminds you of everything you've been exposed to. Um, uh, and you can see why those kind of processes are so insidious and set us up to behave in, in, in kind of particular ways. So I think it's a really interesting question. And the solution will be not just for me, but everyone in the audience to think about, because to me, that is the critical question. And people in whatever domain of life they work in, they can think about, this is a, 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 you know, in, in, you know, in terms of what the next steps would be, really. 100%. 100%.
So the next question is from Margaret. Margaret asks, what, collab what collaborations are there with neuroscientists to show the power of the unconscious mind on behavior in the climate change arena? Again, an interesting question. Um, well, obviously, it was neuroscientists who did the work at Oxford on the optimism bias. So in some sense, their general findings are feeding into the, the, the kind of climate change uh, research. Um, I think if neuroscience teaches us anything, it teaches us a, a lot of research goes on without any conscious awareness. So we're learning a lot more, I think, about, about neural networks, about the mechanisms here, about... Uh, Kahneman's interesting because he, he does steer away from a, from a neuroscience uh, perspective on his thinking. And that's why he came up with the, with the unimaginably titled System 1 and System 2. He, he deliberately called them, gave them a boring title, because I think a lot of neuroscientists are saying, look, there are certain systems of the brain which System 1's are kind of embedded in. So uh, some people have argued, of course, that primitive bits of the brain, you know, connected to the, the hippocampus, the amygdala, are particularly important there because the amygdala is associated with memory uh, and also associated with a lot of emotional responses. So, and, and that kind of makes sense really in terms of implicit processes because you would imagine that, that those kind of primitive bits of the brain are, are set up for survival purposes, but also for, for kind of learning from other kinds of things as well. I mean, obviously, it's not as hardly survival to think about high, having a positive implicit attitude to high carbon, but, but you can see that through the processes of you know, fossil conditioning, certain things get added in there. Mm. So, so I think it is an interesting question, and I'm sure that in the years to over the next few years, there'll be a lot more work on trying to identify what specific mechanisms underpin system, system one cognition. A, a joke I, I sometimes make is, that, uh, and it's a pretty obvious joke, but, but I always say when it comes to climate change, there's no point in asking people to, to tell you what's on their mind or, or trying to read their minds in this. You know, my little joke is because they don't have a mind. They have two. And I think if you think along those lines, which is if we have these two systems of cognition um, and how they operate independently and together, to me, that's really interesting. I mean, if I just mentioned again the racism stuff, when I did my work on racism, I was really quite shocked at what I found because implicit attitude predicted visual attention to aspects of a CV in that people looked at the negative bits of the CV of people from a different racial background which was, okay, that was the first point. But of course, what was really interesting, when, when ever they made their conscious shortlisting decision, when you give them a moment to just look again at the CV at that last minute, they look back at those negative bits. And, and, and to, to me, that is one of the biggest psychological issues, the way these two systems, can I use the word conspire together, the way system one feeds through information to the conscious system to allow it to make certain decisions. To me, that is, is weird. Interesting, but in some sense, we know it's true. Your statistic that 92% of us know that what we say and our behaviors are not aligned. If it's okay with everyone's permission, I'll use that statistic in the future because to me, that sums it up. We know we're not responding in accordance with system two, but we don't know how to stop the system one from doing it. And to me, that's, that's the psychology of climate change. You know, I haven't got a straightforward answer, but I'm thinking about it, I'm worrying about it. But, but that is what we're all thinking about, which is how the hell do we do, do we change this? That's, that's fascinating. Um, all right. So next question is from Helen and she's asking, does the psychology of existential risk have something to do with all of this? In other words, that it's more, it's more comfortable for people to distance themselves from the topic 
rather than understand and embrace the personal and systemic change it calls for? Or are they unconsciously avoiding negative information to preserve their sense of security? That's another really good question. Uh, I mean, it's not one question, of course, there's two big questions there. I think the existential threat, first of all, is you know, too big for the human brain you know, to, to think about too much of the time. I think there is a real issue there, uh, which is, uh, and I think people have got a whole series of evolutionarily adaptive mechanisms to deal with existential threat. You know, um, I, I think that's a really interesting thing. Um, now, of course, that's why you have to catch it in terms of what people can do to avoid it. Um, and of course, negative emotions in some sense are the precursors, you know, the minor precursors of existential threat, your fear, anxiety, catastrophe. Um, so I think it's how you, we need to think about really good mechanisms to make sure that that information isn't simply avoided. Defense mechanisms and some kind of wall doesn't go up. Now, Greta Thunberg's interesting because this notion of, you know, you're all doomed is, you know, she's had enormous traction from, from, from saying that. But in terms of individual responses from ordinary members of the public, it would be fascinating to know what effect that level of threat is having on their everyday functioning. Because once the fear gets too great, uh, uh, sorry, I forgot the name of the person who asked the question now. Um, I think it was Helen. Let me just double check. As, as Helen said, once the threat level gets too high, we have other ways of dealing with it. And, and, and it's almost like we, we have to balance that. We have to think about you're know, making the severity of the issue clear whilst allowing the human mind to cope with it because our human mind's not designed to cope with that level of threat. But the second question was about this business of systemic change. You know, you know through, with COVID, people are saying, well, people have seen that enormous systemic change is possible. We've just done it. We've just shut down the economy for, for three months. But the repercussions of that are going to be clear for the next six months and year and two years and so on. Um, but on the other hand, when it comes to climate change, you know, we need something you know, as significant. Uh, and, and obviously people are, are hoping that the COVID crisis will, 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 will be um, a, a platform to allow other kinds of developments to happen. I see that in the place I live, you know, cycle lanes are suddenly popping up all over the place. Uh, as, as being what one part of it, and perhaps working from home and cutting down travel that way will be another part of that. I mean, I'm sure there are going to be some takeaways, but but I think when people see the economic, you know, what, what the economic implications are, I think that's that's the second part of Helen's question is very good as well, which is what level of systemic change are people prepared to tolerate in terms of maintaining their their their, their level of everyday, you know, lifestyle economic activity and then of course with climate change it's multiplied because we have to think of those you know, aspiring you know emergent co countries who are aspiring to the kind of lifestyle that the west have had for so long and saying well you want to lecture us about cutting our carbon emissions when you've had all these goodies and we're just about to have them i mean we have a giant population but you know uh and, and again enormous challenges there and, and I, I mean Talking about existential threats, sometimes I'm overcome with the with the existential problems involved in all this work. I mean, it's just enormous. But, but I suppose what I'm trying to do is saying, look, at least let's try and have the discourses along the right lines, really, and not, you know, underestimate or overestimate the problems. I mean, I think they're absolutely enormous. But at least let's try thinking in in, in radical ways. And the whole point about 
the slides at the end of our green revolution, I mean, some of those are, are kind of radical. And I mean, saying, to, my God, let's look at the tobacco industry to look for solutions. People are trying to get me locked up. But but I'm thinking, you know, tobacco, I mean, they, they did it. They changed people. You know, and they did it with a certain model of human beings. And perhaps we need something as radical as that to produce that level of systemic change. It makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of wisdom in that. But Professor Beatty, that's all we've got time for today. I want to say thank you again for a really fascinating talk. It's It's been brilliant. Um, have you got any final asks for people? Um, something they can do? Anything practical? Uh, well, 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 let me do what I normally do when I give a lecture. I'm always inviting people to take part in our research. Okay. Uh, and I don't know if anyone would, 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 would be interested. I mean, we Presumably, could they send you their email address now or something? Because, because it, I mean, there are things we could do, like um, um, if people were interested in doing the carbon IAT, for example, I could send that out and maybe line that up with a few a, a few questions about bits and pieces to take part in research. Because I think it always feels good to think, oh, my God, I, I, you know, I, I was part of this, this research program that, that helped change the world or failed to. Um. I'm just trying to think of the simplest way to do this. Maybe if anybody's interested in doing the research, um, just send send me an email with research in the subject line, and then I can pass your email address on to Professor Beatty. Could we do that there? Okay, that would be perfect. Yeah, that would be perfect. Okay. Um, so thanks again, Professor. No, um, it was a pleasure. <laughs> we'll, we'll speak soon, all right?